This week on the SSPX podcast, we'll be sharing the parish mission from St. Vincent de Paul's in Kansas City as it was delivered in 2004. Today, Passion Friday, we'll be hearing from Father Gerard Beck on the topic of the suffering of our Lord by looking at the figures of Simon the Cyrenian and Mary Magdalene. If you would like to hear more parish missions, reflections, conferences, as well as our Crisis in the Church series and Questions with Father series, please visit sspxpodcast.com. And next week, we'll have another series of meditations on the Passion of Our Lord for Holy Week. Now, we'll turn to the Friday evening mission from Father Beck. I'm to speak to you tonight two of those who suffered with our Lord on Calvary, Mary Magdalene and Simon the Cyrenian. Like Father Gardner, I'll try to refrain for the most part from commenting on the Passion of the Christ movie, but I think it's a good place to start. I refer to a scene, the scene when we're first introduced to Simon the Cyrenian. The soldiers come to him to force the cross upon him. And he cries out and he says, No, it's none of my business. Find somebody else. These words aren't reported in Scripture, actually. But we do know that Simon was indeed constrained to carry the cross. It wasn't his choice. And we certainly wouldn't blame him for saying those very words. We would have been inclined to say the same thing, perhaps. But how wrongly. It is our business. It is our business, my dear friends, because firstly, each and every one of us is responsible for that cross that our Lord carries. There is a correlation between the sufferings of our Lord and our sins. If our Lord was condemned and crucified unjustly, it's because of the injustice of men. If our Lord was ravaged in his sacred flesh by the scourging, it's because of the sins of the flesh. If our Lord was humiliated and mocked as a false king, it's because of our sins of pride. And we can go on and on and on and on. And what a tragedy it is if we see the passion of our Lord with a sort of detached eye, we don't see that it relates to us. We don't see that it's our business. It's like a book unread, a treasure unopened, a source of grace untapped. Mary Magdalene is a great example of one who didn't fall into that trap. We know, of course, who she was. She was a prostitute. One who had committed, we would guess from the words of Scripture, every sin imaginable. For Scripture says that out of her, our Lord cast seven devils. The number of perfection, not a number to be taken literally. In other words, she had done it all. Or at least we might well think. She was a great sinner. But one whose heart was not hardened in the hour of grace. We first see her in Scripture in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Our Lord had been invited. He reclined at table. Mary Magdalene was uninvited. And yet she made her entrance. I shouldn't say she was uninvited by all. She was uninvited by all except by God's grace, which was drawing her, calling her, reaching for her. And so she came. She braved the horrified gaze of Simon and those around him, his dignified guests, hoping against hope in the goodness of this wonder worker who forgave sins. And so she approached our Lord from behind. And she dropped to her knees 
and she wept. And her tears fell upon his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And she kissed them, and then she anointed them with a fragrant ointment. The words that she heard from the lips of our Lord, my dear friends, we have all heard. Maybe hundreds of times. Your sins are forgiven you. Go in peace. Those are the words that our Lord spoke to her. How many times in the confessional we have heard those words. But did they ever cause the joy in our heart that they caused in hers? And did they ever fill our heart with the resolve to change what needs to be changed that filled her heart? From that moment on, her life would be a different life. She would follow our Lord. Wherever he went, she would be there. We catch glimpses of her throughout his public life. She was always close, unafraid to show her devotion, her loyalty, even when it came to the point when showing devotion and loyalty to our Lord was no longer the thing to do. The last glance we have of her before the passion of our Lord was at Bethany. It was a few days before our Lord's death. Again we find her at his feet. This time, the atmosphere had changed a bit regarding our Lord. The hatred of his enemies was running high. The pressure on those who followed him was extreme. Mary Magdalene did not fear and she showed one last time proof of her affection and her fidelity. She anointed again his feet with precious ointment, and she was roundly criticized for it. A few days later, our Lord would be in his passion, and she would be continuing to follow. She had followed him up to now, she would not stop now that the path meant Calvary. Our Lord, when he forgave her sins, asked nothing of her. Now he asked something. He asked her to follow him to the top of Calvary. And follow him she did. And there she learned the two great lessons that are spoken to us from the pulpit of the cross. The cross has been called by the fathers of the church the greatest pulpit that ever existed. And the words that our Lord spoke from the cross have been called the greatest sermon that was ever spoken. Two great lessons that were not lost on this converted sinner. The first was the horror of sin. Up until this time, the sins of Mary Magdalene had a certain human proportion to them. Surely she loved our Lord. Surely she knew that she had offended God, but she didn't realize fully what that meant. Now she saw. She saw everything. She saw an infinite reparation for an infinite offense. And that offense was her own. She saw the lashes. She saw the blows to our Lord. She saw the thorns. She saw the nails. And she heard everything, too. She heard the cries of the crowd, the blasphemies, the mockery, the calls, the catcalls of hate and mockery. She heard the grunts of the executioners, the hammer strokes, the groans and cries from the cross. And it ripped her heart out. Because she knew what perhaps we don't realize fully. She knew that it was her sins that caused that suffering to our Lord. She knew that she was responsible. She knew that her sins were that bad. We see her in the movie, The Passion, at one point 
covering her ears, trying to block out the sign. No. We see her covering her eyes, trying to block out the sight. St. Paul's words were a reality to her. Long before he spoke them, you were bought with a great price. We, my dear friends, need to follow the example of Mary Magdalene and place ourselves at the foot of the cross. And we need to realize that those words of St. Paul apply individually to each one of us. I am bought with a great price. Because Christ is on the cross because of me. I am responsible for what they did to him. My sins caused his sufferings. My sins are that bad. If we stopped there, we would fall into despair. We have to hear the second great lesson from the cross. The first is the horror of sin. The second is the depth of the offended God's love for us. For Mary Magdalene, there had never been question of that. She had received pardon at the very feet of our Lord, and we see her time and again back at the feet of our Lord. She never questioned his willingness to have her that near. But it was the cross that gave her a new understanding of just what he meant when he said to his followers, You are my friends. What about us? How easily we doubt. Sometimes we hate ourselves because of what we do or because of what we've done or because of what we fail to do. We hate ourselves. And we wonder how it is possible that our God could love us when we despise our own self. And only the cross can reassure us. How did our Lord look at us when he hung on the cross? Where he did look at us. He looked at each and every one of us individually. He saw each and every one of you. He saw me. And he didn't just see us. He saw our sins. Each and every sin we would ever commit against him, he saw it when he hung from the cross. How did he look at us? What were the thoughts in his heart, in his mind? Did he experience feelings of scorn? Did he despise us? Did he hate us? Did he resent us? We know that he didn't. He tells us himself, greater love than this no man has than that he lay down his life for his friends. We might be poor friends, but that is why he laid down his life for us. To transform us, to make us better, to give us the opportunity to climb the hill with him. But firstly, we need to realize his love for us. And he speaks to us from that cross. And he says over and over again, I laid down my life for you. What more could I do? Is there anything more? Name it. Tell me. I suffered everything on your behalf. If I could suffer more, I would suffer more. I know that words are cheap. Words don't go very far. But I haven't loved you with words. I loved you on the cross. When I walked this earth, I healed the blind. I cured the lepers. I raised the, de the, the dead to life. All of them were grateful. All of them knew that I cared. Why don't you? How could you doubt? Weren't you blind? Blind to my love for you? Blind to the reality of sin? Blind to the fact that I would give anything for your soul? 
Weren't you leprous? Wasn't your soul filled with a leprosy? They can't even compare to which, rather, the leprosy of those lepers can't even compare. It wasn't your soul dead. Not once, but many times. Didn't I raise you from the dead? How can you doubt? And yet, my dear friends, we do. Cardinal Manning says that the great sin of the world is that it does not trust in the love of God. For Mary Magdalene, that was not the case at all. She trusted, she did not doubt, not for an instant. And her heart was filled to the utmost with compunction, filled with the realization of her misery, of just how low she really was, but also filled with the realization of just how deep the mercy of God was. A compunction that was made up of contrition, true contrition, as Father Gardner explained to you last night. Not the contrition, which is a false contrition, where she beat herself up over and over and over again. How could you do that? How could you sink so low? But rather, regret. Regret, regret to the extreme. The regret of a broken heart. The desire to make it up to the one that she loved. A broken heart that proved itself with a hatred and an aversion, not for herself, but for sin. For sin that's so ugly and which caused so much grief to the one that she loved. But her focus was not on the sin itself, but on the pardon that she had received. And she was filled with gratitude, overwhelmed with gratitude, and desirous above all to return the goodness of her Lord. And that, my dear friends, is the major difference, the key difference between a soul that is holy and becomes a saint and a soul that is mediocre and perhaps slips into hell. The difference is not that one falls and the other doesn't. The difference is that the one falls and is not satisfied with simply noticing his falls, if that but endeavors with everything that he has to make it up to the God that he's failed, whereas the other one just settles for that noticing. That's the difference between the mediocre and the holy. But we all fall. In Mary Magdalene, we see that already she had a certain holiness. From the cross, where did she go? She went into the desert. Tradition tells us that she's one of the great patronesses of monasticism. For she fled the world and she spent the rest of her life doing penance and reparation for all that she'd cost our Lord. She would never forget the sights and the sounds of Calvary, the blood, the tears, the shadow of death. It was etched in her memory and she relived it every day. The vivid image of our Lord's regard from the cross, full of sadness, torment, anguish. The echoing sound of his words from that cross, Father, forgive them. All of this she played over and over and over again in her mind and in her heart. And she would have rather died than forget what she had seen and heard, and what she had learned. Again, we see a difference between her and us. She never forgot how easily we forget. We are so fickle, so fickle. We can hear a sermon on the passion. We can go on a retreat we can watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ and we cry and we're filled with regret and we walk out and two days later we again fall into mortal sin. And if we fall so easily it's because precisely 
we forget so easily the sufferings of our Lord for us. Those words that he spoke from the cross apply to us as well. He said, forgive them. He might as well have said, forgive him. Forgive her. Forgive Mary. Forgive John. Forgive James. Forgive me. Forgive me. Meaning me. We have to turn those words and we have to apply them to ourselves. How fickle we are and how small is our gratitude. Isn't it true that we tend to treat our Lord kind of like our employer? You men, you go to work. There's a certain amount that's expected of you. There are certain things that you're expected to get done. There are certain things that you're expected to make sure don't happen. And that is what you do. And rare is the employee that does more than that. He does his job. No more, maybe, no less. And isn't that the way we treat our Lord so often? Kind of like a contract we have with him. We're expected to do this, go to Mass on Sunday, say a quick morning prayer, a quick evening prayer. We're expected to avoid, make sure certain things don't happen. And so we do. But we're not willing to do more. We treat our Lord like an employee. And we expect him to give us our wage. And if that wage isn't coming, in a way that we can see it, we hold it against him. We resent it. What have I ever done to him? How can he ask this of me? Haven't I given enough? So different from Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene saw her duty to make reparation for sin. Reparation does what the word says. It repairs. It repairs a broken friendship. Repairs a wounded heart. And because she spent the rest of her life after Calvary trying to repair the damage she had done to her Lord, she became a great saint. The one who tradition holds, at least many in tradition hold, is the greatest female saint after the Blessed Virgin Mary. Her falls and her weakness were not an obstacle. She is today one of the greatest saints in heaven. We too must realize our duty to make reparation. It is for us a question of justice. No sin may be allowed to go unpunished by our God. He is a just God. Who is willing to pay the price with him? If we are not willing, my dear friends, who is going to be willing? When we have received so much, doesn't he have the right to ask more of us than he asks of the Tom, Dicks, and Harrys that live down the street? It is a question of justice. It's also a question of honor. God's honor. Because he is being, has been, is being, every day, dishonored. And dishonored to the extreme. Spit in the face in a way that what happened on Calvary pales in comparison almost. For now we know what sin does to our Lord. And now we know what his love for us is. And for those men, they didn't know. He is being dishonored. So it is a question of his honor that is at stake to make reparation. And it's a question also of our honor. Because how can we stand by and say, I believe in him. He's my God. He's my Savior. He died for me. He loves me. He gave everything for me. But I'm not willing to do anything extra for him. What kind of honor is there in that? How can we stand and look at ourselves in the mirror if that is our mentality? If we are simply willing to do the bare minimum, nothing more. How do we make reparation? For there will be generous, steadfast, uncomplaining fidelity 
in the world in which we live. A world that has abandoned our Lord. A world that is indifferent to our Lord. A world that trades our Lord for the slightest pleasure, for the slightest satisfaction. A world that complains at the least suffering. A world that is selfish. Fidelity is the best way to make reparation. And then a willingness to carry the crosses of everyday life, the little ones and the bigger ones. But firstly, the little ones. And with that, a willingness to go the extra mile for our Lord. To be willing when we fall to try to make it up to him. To take upon ourselves some voluntary penance. Remember, the sacrament that we stand in line to receive is called the sacrament of penance, as well as confession. Confession because there we confess our sins. Penance because we are meant to confess our sins with a willingness to make reparation. Don't wait for the little penance that the priest give you, gives you to try to make it up to our Lord when you fall short. Most often that penance that he gives you is far beneath what he would like to give you if he had the confidence that you would be willing to take it upon yourself. He doesn't want to burden a soul, and so he gives a very light penance. The curé of ours used to do that, but he was a saint, and he knew that the duty remained to make reparation, and so he took it upon himself. And sometimes he would tell his penances, his penitents, I want you to do this, but with that penance, I will do this for you in addition. He wanted them to realize they need to be willing to do more. The cross, my dear friends, is our business. It is our business because we are responsible for our Lord's sufferings. It is our business also because we have, straight from our Lord himself, an obligation to help him save the souls for which he carried that cross. We have to understand a little bit about God's plan for our redemption. No man goes to heaven alone. We've heard that said. Any soul that goes to heaven will take with him many other souls. Any soul that goes to hell will take with him many other souls. And the higher your position and the more the souls entrusted to you, the more that statement is true. A bishop or a priest will carry with him, for better or for worse, a vast number of souls. He will either reap the reward of taking them to heaven, or he will answer on Judgment Day for leading them to hell. So likewise, a parent. He will either reap the reward of taking with him his children to heaven, or he will answer for them on Judgment Day. And the sins that they committed, because of his bad example, because of his lukewarmness, because of his mediocrity. No one goes to heaven alone. The destiny of souls is linked. Not that anyone can be lost through no fault of their own. God always gives the graces that are needed to every soul. But we have to realize that he wills from all eternity to give those graces through the efforts of other souls. And if other souls are unwilling 
to work with him, to earn those graces, then the graces that are given are limited. Mysteriously, the salvation of many is contingent on our efforts to help our Lord save the souls with with whom we come into contact. We had the testimony of no less than Our Lady of Fatima. She said it to the children. Many go to hell because there is no one to pray for them and no one who will do sacrifices for them. And that is why our Lord gave us two great commandments, not just one. The first he said, you must love me with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, because I'm your God and I'm your Savior. But if you love me, you will love your neighbor as well. And the second commandment is that. Love your neighbor. The duty of charity towards those around us. And what does that charity mean? It doesn't firstly mean feed the poor, give alms, be kind. No, not firstly. Firstly, it means help those around you to save their souls. That is the duty of charity. And it is a duty that is incumbent on each one of us. It is a sacred duty. It is a duty that we will stand before God for. We are not permitted, my dear friends, to have a certain save-my-own-skin mentality. We are members of the same family, fighting for survival in a deadly battle with eternity in the balance. And we cannot look around us and say, I only care about me. To do so is to fail, not only to love our neighbor, it is to fail to love our God, who loves those souls around us. And that charity, if we are to have it in our soul, it means something very concrete. It means a willingness. A willingness to pay the price. Just as our Lord's charity for us meant a willingness to carry the cross to Calvary, So charity for souls in our hearts means the willingness to pay the price in carrying the cross to Calvary. That cross is not the light one. Souls are very expensive. Our Lord showed us that loud and clear. And the currency we're going to purchase those souls with is the currency of suffering. St. Theophan Bernard says suffering is the money which buys heaven for us and for our neighbor. St. Madeline Sophie Barrett says our Lord saved the world through the cross and he will only work for the good of souls today through the cross. We find ourselves, my dear friends, smack up against a tremendous mystery. The mystery of pain and suffering in this world in which we live. And how God can be good and still ask the suffering that he asks. We've all seen it. We've all seen the innocent suffer. We've all seen the innocent suffer to the extreme. How can God be good and still ask such a thing? How can God be just and impose this great injustice on so many? We have to realize, my dear friends, to start the pain, all pain, every kind of pain Every kind of suffering is a consequence of sin. The world that God created before the fall of Adam and Eve was a world without sin, and therefore it was a world without suffering. 
There was no war. There was no hatred. There was no injustice. There was no exploitation of one's fellow men. There was no sickness. There was no disease. There was no death. There was no famine. There was no drought. There was no want. The world as God created it was a world without suffering. When did that change? It changed when Adam fell. And man injected into this creation of Almighty God the supreme disorder, the disorder of the creature against his God, a creature turning his back on the God who had given him everything. And from that supreme disorder trickled down every kind of disorder in nature, every kind of physical disorder, every kind of moral disorder, every kind of pain. We can take the example of the limb on a man, let's say my elbow. As God created it, it works very well, and there is no pain. But if I take a hard hit in a football game, and I dislocate my elbow, and I knock it out of joint, there is then disorder. Things are not ordered as God intended them to be. And as a consequence of that disorder, as a consequence of that dislocation, there is pain, and tremendous pain. That is what happened in God's creation. All the creation was dislocated by the fall of Adam and Eve. God in his heaven did not stand by and say, Well, too bad for them. I gave them their chance. I gave them everything. The hell with them. That is not our God. That was not our God then, and that is not our God now. He does not stand by and look at the pain and suffering of mankind and say, I don't care. They caused it. It's their fault. Let them deal with the bed they made. That is not our God. Because our God is a loving God. And love identifies itself with the one who's loved. The pain of the one who's loved becomes the pain of the one who loves. You mothers know that very well. If you see your son or your daughter break a leg or be mistreated or be lonely, you feel it in your own heart, perhaps more than they feel it themselves. Because love is not concerned with oneself. It's concerned with the one who is loved. It's not concerned with receiving. It's concerned with giving. It's not concerned with avoiding pain. It's concerned with alleviating pain. One who loves cannot be happy so long as those who are loved are unhappy. One who loves cannot be at peace so long as those who loved are in turmoil. And so it was with our God in heaven. When he looked down at this earth, suffering every kind of pain and disorder, through its own fault. And God said to his son, Go. Go and take their sufferings on yourself. All of their sufferings. Every suffering that is there as a consequence of sin to the very suffering of the most unjust of deaths. Take it upon yourself. Compassion is the mark of our God. The word means to suffer with. Our God sees our suffering, and he suffers it with us, to the point that he'll do anything to alleviate that suffering, to the point that he's willing to die for us. As Bishop Sheen said, he could not love us perfectly, unless 
He died for us, unless he gave everything. And he applies the same words to the mother of God. How could she stand by and love her son perfectly and not want to die with him, not want to suffer everything that he suffered for us? And that's why Bishop Sheen continues, that is why his life was given for us, and that is why her heart was broken for us. That is why he is the Redeemer, and that is why she is the Redemptrix of all graces. Because they love. We, hear, we see, rather, supreme innocence in the person of our Lord and the person of Our Lady Supreme innocence, taking all suffering upon itself. But that doesn't mean that God took away the pain and the suffering. All creation was out of joint. The elbow was dislocated. God popped it back in by his death on the cross. But as we know from nature, when the joint is put back into place, the pain remains. Almighty God allowed the pain to remain, and he allowed it for a reason. He allowed it to give us the opportunity to return the love that he had showed us. We don't love when things are easy. We don't prove our fidelity while we're on our honeymoon. We prove our fidelity, we prove our love when things are difficult, when the cross is heavy. And God allows that. He allows the suffering in this world so that we have the chance to make it up to him for having failed to love him. We see a beautiful example of that in St. Dismas, the good thief. As Bishop Sheen remarks, the crucifixion gave the good thief his one good opportunity for making amends for his failure to love and enabled him, by that act of love, to purchase paradise that very day. If we love our Lord, too, my dear friends, just as he could not stand by and be indifferent at our suffering, at our misery, if we love our Lord, if we are unselfish, if we are not looking to receive but rather to give, then we cannot stand by and be indifferent when we see his suffering for us. And there's a very deep, great part of us that welcomes suffering because it allows us to be with him in his suffering for us. He allows the pain to remain so that we can prove our love for him. And he allows the pain to remain so that we can love souls as he loved souls. He died for us. He asked one thing in return. And that is the willingness to love souls as he loved them. I'm not making it up. Those are his words. After the Last Supper, he said to his apostles, he said to his followers, love one another as I have loved you. They didn't yet know what those words meant. They didn't know how far those words would go. We do. When our Lord said those words, he meant them for us, just as he meant them for his followers of that day. And he was saying to us, be willing to take up the cross, be willing to lay down your life, be willing to suffer, as I have for souls. My love for you has no limits. Your love for me must not be limited 
Your love for souls must not be limited. Many, many, many souls in the history of the church, my dear friends, have taken that admonition of our Lord literally. And that is why young, talented, beautiful, handsome, well-off, with all of their life in front of them, they have gone to a monastery or they have gone to a convent and they've given their life in sacrifice. Sacrifice for souls. Sacrifice in imitation of our Lord. Desiring to prove what our Lord has already proved, that their love is without limit. Not all of us are called to make that kind of sacrifice. Some of you are. Which ones? I don't know. But some of you are. When our Lord said, Love one another as I have loved you, for you, he meant it literally. He wants you to give your life. He wants you to be that close to him on the road to Calvary. The rest of you is not quite the same. But the words still apply. You are still called to make sacrifice, to join in the sacrifice for souls. That is your vocation. Because you are, by the mark of your baptism, you are other Christs. Your soul is marked with the cross, a cross that identifies your soul as belonging to our Lord, but a cross also which spells out what your life is meant to be for our Lord. You are another Christ. You are meant to fill up what is lacking in his sufferings for souls. It's St. Paul who gives us those words. Our Lord suffered everything that he could in his physical body. But how is his blood going to reach souls in the world in which we live, here and now, in a world which has fallen so far from our Lord, in a world which has forgotten the memory of Calvary, how is his blood going to reach souls in today's world? It's not only through the sacraments. It's not only through the Mass. It's through the cross and the daily life of Catholics, of other Christs. We are meant to extend the passion of our Lord in time, to continue his passion in the mystical body of which we are a part. By our suffering, united to him, to the life of grace in our soul, we continue his sufferings in the world in which we live. Christ continues today to suffer for sinners. And that is our mission. Again, the words of Scripture, Unto this we are called, for Christ has suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. We are meant, like him, to be redeemers. Not the Redeemer with a capital R, but redeemers with a small case R. Redeemers joined with him. He asks each one of us to suffer with him for souls. Note that he asks. And the answer must be, from our part, voluntary. Suffering in our life will be there whether we accept it or not. But suffering which we refuse will not save a soul. To refuse and to become embittered by the cross, by suffering and daily life, is to be defeated by the cross. And it's to render it useless in the purchase of souls. It's also to render it poison to our own souls. Just like a food that should be nourishing, but if something is wrong in our stomach, if there's a disorder, we are sick, we take that food in and our body can't handle it. And even though there's nothing wrong with the food, 
the body rejects it and throws it up. So it is with the cross. If there is a disorder in our soul and we are unwilling to accept the suffering, then our soul will throw it up. And our soul will be sick on account of it. What is the cause of this rejection on the part of a single soul? There's only one cause. Bishop Sheen says it very precisely. Only those who refuse to love ever flee from the cross. Monsignor Knox comments, It's hard hearts, not broken hearts, that are the tragedy of our world. To refuse the cross is to render it poison and useless for souls. On the other hand, to accept it, to embrace it. In other words, to realize why the cross is there and to say to our God, you suffered for me, I'm willing to suffer for you. You suffered for souls, I'm willing to suffer for souls. To accept the cross in that way is to conquer it and to render it salutary, not only for oneself, but also for the souls around us. But the willingness, my dear friends, has to be there. And so we come finally to Simon the Cyrenian. We know that at a given point of our Lord was unable to carry his cross. The abuse was taking its toll. He was very weak. His executioner saw this, and they began to fear that he would die before he reached Calvary. They did not want that to happen. They wanted him to die a horrible death of a cross. And so they sought to lighten his load. And they grabbed Simon, a passerby, and they took the cross and they imposed it upon him. We know from Scripture that at first he was an unwilling helper. We've already spoken of that. It's not my business. He did not know our Lord. As far as he was concerned, it was a common criminal. And so he had little care for him. Little care for his sufferings. He saw on that cross only a shameful burden. And he was worried about what people might think. He would be associated with a criminal. People would think that he was a criminal. People would think that he had been condemned. He wasn't condemned. He was innocent. We've already seen that he wasn't any more than we are. The point is, though, that the cross had to be forced on him or he never would have accepted it. And isn't that the truth for us, too? The cross is not desirable in itself. The cross hurts. It causes great pain. And rarely would we have the courage to take it upon ourselves of our own accord. And yet that is what is necessary for our own salvation. And that is what is necessary for the salvation of those around us. So God, in his wisdom, imposes it upon us. And there's only one thing that makes the cross that God imposes upon us bearable. And that is charity. A charity that means first a willingness to turn our gaze away from ourselves and to look instead at our God and at the souls that he loves. We are all focused on ourselves. That is the fall of original sin that leaves that deep wound in our souls. There is a tendency in each one of us to add up our crosses. Each one that we give, we kind of put it on a pile, and then we stand back and we look at the pile. And each day that pile gets a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger. 
And the danger is that looking at that big pile, rather than looking at simply the little cross of the moment, we will grow resentful and will be overwhelmed. I've seen it, my dear friends, in many, many a soul. A soul that will come to me to another priest and will say, how can God keep asking this of me? How can he ask so much? Haven't I given enough? Isn't there finally going to be a day when he's going to say, okay, that's enough? Is he going to keep piling it higher and higher and higher? And the soul itself cries out, enough. That's it. I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. I've tried hard enough. It doesn't do any good. The problem is the focus is on oneself. And the focus is on not the cross of the moment even, but rather an accumulation of crosses. You don't have the grace in this moment, to carry the whole pile of the crosses of your life. You have the grace to carry the cross of today and no more. But you won't even be willing to carry the cross of today unless your gaze turns to our Lord. For Simon the Cyrenian, the cross became a little less repulsive and little by little even desirable, only in the measure that he stopped looking at himself, stopped looking at what was being asked of him, and started looking at our Lord. It's something which is shown magnificently in the film The Passion of Christ. At first, Simon was sullen, resentful. But the dignity and the majesty and the willingness of our Lord in his sufferings was like a magnet to his eyes, and he could not keep his eyes off of him. And as he watched our Lord, he grew to love our Lord. Perhaps a little bit at first, but there was a sympathy there. And he began to try to help our Lord. There was a time that our Lord started to fall, and he held onto his arm and tried to keep him from hitting the ground. There was a time that our Lord did fall, and he struggled, Simon did, with everything that he had to keep the cross from going on top of him. He defended him for being abused. He encouraged him with his words. You're almost there. It's almost done. He began to realize something. Our Lord had taken the cross on willingly, deliberately. And so he himself was willing. And it got to the point where he did not want to leave our Lord. In the film, when they finally get to Calvary and his job was done, he sank to his knees before our Lord and he could not move away. The soldiers had to grab him and throw him away, abusing him. The cross became desirable because he gazed on our Lord and not on himself. And that is true for us as well. Our strength in carrying the cross will come only from our Lord and not from ourselves. We cannot hope to carry the cross of our own accord. It is too heavy for us. We will fall. We must go to our Lord who is our strength. We must keep our eyes on him. Again in the film, it's magnificently done. At a given point, our Lord struggles back to his feet and he embraces his cross once again. And Simon embraces the cross with him, and their arms are crossed, they're linked. It's together that they carry the cross. 
the gaze on our Lord and the gaze on souls. Our Lord shouldered the cross with a purpose. And so we too must shoulder the cross with a purpose. And that purpose is what will give us strength. We've spoken of the love of God and how we prove our love by carrying the cross. We've also mentioned the love of souls. And it helps very much when God asks a difficulty of us, a cross, a suffering, a pain. It helps us to think of the souls that will be saved by our willingness to carry that cross. We have a beautiful example of that just recently at our school in Armada, our boys' school, St. Joseph's Academy. Father Yuko was there visiting the school, and he went out in the barn to watch the boys go through their Navy SEAL workout, which they do three times a week, I believe. It's a very strenuous workout and one which they're proud of, but one which they have a very difficult time with as well. And at times, of course, being normal boys, they're tempted to complain, resent it perhaps just a little bit. And this day, there were the usual groans, there were the usual complaints escaping from some of the boys. And Father Hugo spoke to them, and he said to them, Boys, there's a young man that I'm working with back in California. His name is Lucas Roberts. He's dying. He's not a Catholic. I've been going to see him very often. He's very close to death, but he's not willing to convert. Something's holding him back. There's a block somewhere. You boys, he said, need to break down that wall. You need to be willing to shoulder the cross for him. And Father McMahon spoke up and he said, Boys, let's offer this workout. And the boys did so. And not just the workout. They made it harder. They doubled the exercises. They held the push-ups even longer than normal. They did so without complaint. All of them. Father Hugo went back to California and he sent this fax a few days later. The valiant eagles, the St. Joseph eagles, have snatched another soul from the claws of the dragon. Boys, Lucas Roberts died yesterday. He was baptized, confirmed, given extreme unction, enrolled in the brown scapular just one hour before he died. He's home, victorious, thanks to your generosity in the barn. Generosity for souls and a purpose. And because the purpose was there, a willingness to give. The focus was God, the focus was souls, and so there was a willingness, and there was a strength, and there was a nobility that wasn't there before. And what did God bring out of it? He brought out of it a soul in heaven. And not just in heaven, straight to heaven. A soul that will be a jewel in the crown of each one of those boys at Armada, provided that he per perseveres in carrying his cross. Because the cross is the key to heaven. And everyone has a key. The gate is locked. Our Lord opened the big padlock. We must open the little one. And the little key that we use are the sufferings that God asks of us. And that key will be our glory, or it will be our shame. We go back to Simon the Cyrenian. He did not want the cross because he thought it would be for his shame. He thought that he would be incriminated by being with a condemned criminal. He thought that people would think he was guilty. He was ashamed. But what is that man remembered for today? The cross that he carried. And so it is with us. We don't want the cross. We wouldn't take it of our own accord. But it is our means to eternal glory.
if we are willing to shoulder it. When our Lord hung on the cross, my dear friends, he cried out at a given moment, I thirst. And we know, we've heard it many times, that it wasn't the agonizing physical thirst that he spoke of. It was his thirst for souls. Souls that he knew, despite everything that he was giving, were not willing to accept his offering. Bishop Sheen says, It is difficult for us to grasp the intensity of this suffering on the part of our Lord, simply because none of us ever loves enough. We have not the capacity for love that he has, and therefore we can never miss so much when it is denied. But when our little hearts are sometimes denied the love that they crave, when our hearts are broken by the refusal of someone to love that we love, then we get some faint inkling of what must have gone on in our Lord's great heart as he hung on the cross. He died in the desert of human hearts, of thirst. What, my dear friends, is our response to the broken heart of our Lord Jesus Christ? What do we do to ease our Lord's agonizing thirst for the love of souls, which continues even now? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.